Hello, and welcome back to the third episode of the HSAC podcast. For those of you that don't know, we are the Harvard College Sports Analytics Collective, a group of undergraduate students dedicated to the quantitative and statistical analysis of sports. We break down the numbers and advance metrics behind all your favorite teams and players, trying to bring useful insights to the game. I am David Arco, a freshman at Harvard College, and today I am lucky to be joined by three great guests and fellow HSAC members, Ella Papanik, Danny Blumenthal, and Tucker Boynton, who were previously on our first two episodes in which we discussed the AFC and NFC Championship games and previewed the Super Bowl. On this episode, we will be recapping Super Bowl 55, in which the Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeated the Kansas City Chiefs 31-9. Now, this score was definitely to many people's surprise, as the Bucs were underdogs going into the game. Granted, the Chiefs were only favored by three points, but nobody was expecting the Bucs to route them in this fashion. The Chiefs only led once, 3-0 towards the end of the first quarter. Two Gronkowski touchdowns later, it was 14-3, and then a pass interference call allowed Brady to pass for another touchdown to Antonio Brown, making it 21-6 heading into the half. The Chiefs never got back within a score from there, and the Bucks won 31-9. To be honest, this was kind of a disappointing Super Bowl, you know, especially given the lack of competitiveness and the hype around the Brady-Mahomes matchup. For some context, in the last 10 Super Bowls, the average margin of victory was 10 points, and only one other Super Bowl in the last decade had a margin of over three scores. That is, the winning team won by more than three scores than the losing team, and that was back in Super Bowl 49 when the Seahawks defeated the Broncos 43-8, which was sort of in similar fashion to the game that we just saw. So now Tom Brady has won his seventh Super Bowl and his fifth Super Bowl MVP. He now has more Super Bowls than any NFL franchise. Obviously, the other MVP of the game was the Buccaneers' defense and their defensive coordinator, Todd Bowles. As a Jets fan myself, this is my closest link to the game. The Bucks' defense held Patrick Mahomes to 26 for 49 passing for 270 yards, two interceptions, and a QBR of 50, which was the second worst of his career, as he's only had a QBR of under 50 twice. That just shows you know how great and consistent of a quarterback Mahomes is. On the other side of the ball, Brady was 21 for 29 passing for 201 yards and three touchdowns and a QBR of 82. The game script really didn't require Brady to pass a lot after the first half, which is probably why his passing numbers, especially his attempts and yards, are deflated compared to Mahomes. Besides the quarterbacks, the two tight ends were the leading receivers on both teams with Travis Kelsey catching 10 passes for 133 yards. Granted, some of those were in garbage time and Gronk catching six passes for 67 yards and two touchdowns. We also can't forget uh, about Cameron Brait. That's now the second straight year that a Harvard player has appeared in the Super Bowl, along with Kyle Juszczyk of the 49ers last year. Brait had three catches for 26 yards. And ultimately, the Bucks might have shown that defenses can still win championships, even in this offensively driven era, as they held Patrick Mahomes to only nine points and zero touchdowns. In the rest of Patrick Mahomes' career, he had only been held to zero touchdowns in four games and had only been held under 20 points twice before this, and he had never been held under 10 points. So this obviously leads into my first question of what the Bucs did well. We know the defense did well, but looking for kind of something more specific here, whether that it could be defensively oriented or on the offensive side of the ball, but what did the Bucs do well that allowed them to, you know, kind of destroy the Chiefs? Yeah, look, I think the defense deserves a lot of credit, especially the pass rush. But uh, as I saw it pointed out on Pro Football Focus, uh, it takes more than that to beat Mahomes and the Chiefs. 
the coverage was just outstanding uh, and they survived those patented sort of scramble out of the pocket, make a circus play, Patrick Mahomes moves. They were able to fend those off. And so like there were some very close calls, but I think you can't underrate sort of the pass coverage in the defensive backfield. I also think Brady's command of the game and his performance, quite honestly, eliminated any chance that the Bucs were going to, you know, let this one slip away. Usually, you know, when you see the Chiefs in a game like that with Mahomes, everything is sort of on the table and you never feel like they're out of it. But the way that the Bucs were playing on both sides of the ball, specifically with regard to the short passing attack, I think the Bucs did some really interesting schematic things. You saw the the pass to Gronkowski was a super creative play called by Byron Leftwich. And the first pass to Gronkowski, that is. Um, and I just think Brady and the offense were just super, super solid all game. And it was that sort of one-two punch. I don't think, you know, the narrative that the defense was the only thing that beat the Chiefs is is not necessarily the full story. The, the offense was able to put up 31 points and Brady did it with remarkable efficiency. In the 70th percentile, 75th percentile in terms of EPA per play, yeah, the passing attack was rolling. And shockingly, things reversed from last week. We talked about, you know, keys to the game for the Bucks, And one of the things that I had highlighted at the time was increasing early down efficiency because late down efficiency is pretty noisy and not necessarily reliable on a week-to-week basis. Uh, and lo and behold, the Bucks on a per-play basis were just tremendous on early downs, um, set themselves up for shorter late down situations, despite the fact that they were not very good on third and fourth downs. Um, they were just really good on early downs on offense. So I would say to put all of that together, obviously the defense was tremendous. I think the pass coverage is probably not getting as much love as it deserves just because there's, there are more than one pieces in the puzzle in terms of stopping Mahomes and the Chiefs. And then I think Brady's accuracy and the creative play calling from left, which were all sort of keys to this victory that was, as you said, a a total blowout. I think a few specific things that I noticed um, the Bucs doing defensively is they played a lot of cover two and two man, and then they integrated a bit more quarters late in the game. But I think the critical thing to note there is that they were keeping two safeties deep for a significant portion of the game to really put a stop to the Chiefs passing game. And that was at the cost of the Chiefs having some success running the ball, but that's a trade-off that they were completely willing to make, and that made a lot of sense. And then in terms of the Bucks' pass rush, they're known to use some less common defensive fronts, which enabled them to get pressure even while reducing their blitz rate. So like throughout the season, they had blitzed very heavily, but they didn't in this game. They really were able to like keep the focus on shutting down the passing game. But that pressure on Mahomes is really visible by like any metric. The Bucks had the highest or their pass rush had the largest win percent they've had this season by a significant margin, as well as the highest pressure rate. Uh, we saw like Mahomes was scrambling all over the field. He traveled almost 500 yards. I think Seth Walder had some yeah. tweet that was, yeah, it was about Brady had like 30 yards or something. So that was pretty crazy to see. Um, and he also had his, his second highest time to throw this season, which is a big indicator of broken plays. Um, and it was, I think, second only to the Chiefs loss to the Raiders in week five. So that's just all those kind of go to show how broken the Chiefs offensive scheme was. Building off of what Alice said, I think, the Bucks' pass rush in particular was special in this game because of the way the front four, they switched everything up. I mean, oftentimes they use stunts and twists to get favorable matchups against the weakened Chiefs O-line. And because the Chiefs hadn't played much together, these stunts and twists and creating matchups could 
get Shaq Barrett and all of the studs on the Bucks defensive line into position. So just as an example, there were a couple of plays when Barrett started out lining up on the right side, and then they had Kong Su and Vita Villa sliding over to capture that right side and then send Shaq Barrett around on the left side, and that wreaked havoc on the Chiefs aligned in the homes. And then on the other side, as Tucker pointed out, uh, the short passing game was tremendous for the Buccaneers, especially in terms of play action. Even though the Bucs rarely use play action during the regular season, they're in 27th in the league in play action passing rate. They use play action to absolutely tremendous success uh, in this game. Brady was 10 of 13, 135 yards and three touchdowns. And I think one reason they were so effective with play action was because it started from those jumbo formations. They had six offensive linemen, two tight ends, um, forced the Chiefs to play with more base formation for defensive backs. And as such, they couldn't get into position to cover the pass plays. And those really, really helped out in terms of the early down success, like like Tucker mentioned. Yeah, I also think you jogged my memory, but just being so undisciplined on defense, you can you can whine and gripe about the penalties all you want. The bottom line is that the Chiefs were extremely undisciplined. Who you blame that on, I don't really care, but the, that was really a backbreaking drive at the end of the first half. You know, it seemed like maybe maybe the offense for KC had figured something out, even though they were held to a field goal. And then they gave the ball back to the Bucks, and the Bucks just sort of, in true Brady fashion, orchestrated this slow death by a thousand cuts. And by the end of that drive, it was like it just seemed like the Chiefs were defeated. And I'm not really big into the sort of like you know qualitative or psychological analyses of the defense. But from a logistical and just strategic perspective, penalties killed the Chiefs. And sometimes it really is that simple. I guess we'll get into this later in the podcast about penalty stuff. But I think they were they did play a significant role, especially on that last drive where the Bucks really just sort of drove the stake in, even though it wasn't over. Kind of felt like it was over. Yeah, definitely. I think you guys all hit on it. It was the Bucks defense as a whole. Ellis said it. They didn't. They didn't really blitz a lot, and that allowed them to play, you know, deep coverage, so they would not get beat on the deep ball. So they were still getting pressure with, you know, four or five rushers, and still able to play that deep coverage. So kind of it was those two units kind of working together. So both of those things went right, which is what made it such a successful game for the Bucks. So yeah, we kind of started getting into it, but I think we can now get into what the Chiefs did poorly. So Tucker already mentioned, you know, he said the the penalties were one thing, but the other big thing was the offensive line. So going into the game, we knew that the Chiefs O-line was beat up, especially with Eric Fisher, you know, going down in the AFC Championship game. I know Danny, on our uh, Super Bowl preview episode, you mentioned that this would be a cause for concern for the Chiefs heading into the game. But on the other hand, the whole season, Mahomes had been one of the best quarterbacks under pressure. I remember reading a, a 538 article early in the season that charted his QBR performance week by week, along with his average seconds to pass. And in the games where he had less time to pass, he had a better QBR performance. So I wasn't really expecting it to affect him that much, but it really seemed like he was just scrambling all over the field on every pass. And it did lead to some, you know, epic athletic throws that were that were pretty crazy, but he never really got like a hold in the game. I think he was only in the red zone three times, so they, they never really had a chance. So the question here is the offensive line, you know, it's never really the center of attention on a team, but I think now people are starting to realize, you know, how important they are in both the rushing and and passing game, you know, just winning at the line of scrimmage. 
But to general fans, it's kind of just the eye test. How big is the hole for the running back? How clean is the pocket for the quarterback? How much time does he have to throw? But what are some metrics that can tell us how well the offensive line is performing to kind of quantify what we see on the field? One metric we can use is pass block win rate or run block win rate uh, from ESPN. Seth Walder has done a lot of work with this, Brian Burke as well. But just a quick description is it uses tracking data to identify whether offensive linemen hold their blocks for two and a half seconds and whether they can maintain a pocket. And if they do so, then they are credited with a win. This is obviously not perfect. A couple problems with it, um, such as when a quarterback takes a very deep drop and as if they are anticipating pressure beforehand. I think Mahomes had this happen several times before, and that might have ended up as one of the reasons why he started scrambling around for 500 yards, like we mentioned earlier. So even if the offensive line doesn't hold a block for two and a half seconds, they can still get credited with a win if the quarterback is completely out of the picture and aren't allowing a major pressure. Even still, pass block win rate is still a helpful metric to use to judge offensive line play. I think sacks in particular aren't always a good metric just because uh, they're often quarterback-driven, how long are they holding the ball, and also coverage-driven by the defense. If the cornerbacks and safeties are blanketing the receivers, the quarterback might get sacked, even though it's not the offensive line's fault. Yeah, I think this game was a really great opportunity to re-examine some of those metrics. Um, There was a lot of discourse online about how accurately those sort of metrics that we hold up as the sort of prime example of how to you know accurately measure something maybe didn't accurately measure the offensive line play in this game and that's not to to slight you Danny I think in general that they can be great a great metric but Seth Walder did post that the Chiefs pass block win rate was 67% in that game and had a whole thread on explaining you know why that might have been the case but I think yeah I mean personally since then I've sort of been looking at alternative metrics because I think you know, you got to take the whole picture and maybe pass block win rate is one of the things you look at, but it certainly can't be the only thing you look at. PFF Moo does all of this work with survival curves, which are essentially a graphical representation of how long the quarterback has before he faces pressure. So the time to seconds after the snap is on the x-axis and what's called survival percentage. So percent of plays that last that long without a pressure is on the y-axis. Um, And I actually think that's a really good way to visualize it because if you're using sort of like a win-loss binary uh, measure, you have to set an arbitrary cutoff somewhere, in which case you're biasing your results. So for example, if you have a quarterback who gets the ball out fast, you may not need to hold your block for two and a half seconds and you wouldn't get any sort of credit or you wouldn't get dinged if the quarterback gets the ball out fast. So the idea that sort of pass block win rate sets an arbitrary threshold, I think is an important consideration and worth contextualizing. I wonder how those metrics might sort of be developed maybe this offseason as sort of a continuous measure as opposed to a binary win or loss. And I don't know exactly how it would be done. Obviously, you know, they, they'd have to work with the tracking data and figure it out. But I do think that this Super Bowl exposed some of the sort of holes and maybe the analysis of offensive lines that we thought that we had, you know, locked up or at least that were that we believed were really good descriptors of performance. So I would say just to compliment 
what Danny has said, survival rate is another good statistic to look at. And I think it is worth re-examining after the Super Bowl when the Chiefs offensive line did so well in pass block win rate, maybe re-examining some of the things that we thought were, you know, sort of tried and true methods in the analytics community. Yeah, this definitely like leads into my next question, which is for Ella. So we have all these statistics that we can use to assess lineman performance. And it's obviously interesting because we have these five, you know, different one-on-one matchups and we can evaluate each lineman in each matchup. But all it takes is just one defensive lineman to get pressure on the QB. And we kind of saw like how one injury like Eric Fisher can have a huge rippling effect across the line. And so my question is, it's interesting to talk about about roster construction. Like last episode, we talked about would you rather have two elite wide receivers or three to four, you know, decent wide receivers? So as it relates to offensive line, would you rather have five all-around decent linemen or two to three stars and then potential weak spots? Yeah, so I think it's highly dependent on personnel and scheme, so I can't really say there's a universal answer. The Chiefs shifted Andrew Wiley to right tackle. He's an experienced player, so I think that's a reasonable choice, like given my limited understanding of their personnel availability at tackle. But I think there's a few things that hold true just across the board. So I think one thing is the number of contingencies on the success of any of your plays. So if you require six guys to successfully make their blocks in order for your play to be successful, whatever, however you measure success, that's typically not a well-designed play. It's just so unlikely to succeed. And that's also kind of a reason that the NFL has been progressing in favor of the past, just that fewer things have to go right in order for a pass play to work. So I think if you're requiring all of your offensive linemen to complete a block for your play to be successful, you, especially when you have certain weaker offensive linemen playing, you should not be running those kinds of plays. Um, But even in general, you should probably be turning away from those types of plays. For looking at the Chiefs run scheme specifically, it, it consists mostly of outside zone, inside zone, and then a little bit of power. Um, and so in zone runs, the, the way it's designed, you'll have every offensive lineman blocking the guy in front of him. And then if there's no one in front of him, he'll double team the guy in the direction that the run play is drawn up. So the difficulty there is that setup can be somewhat porous, especially when your linemen aren't playing completely in sync and have, don't, haven't taken a lot of reps together. So the Bucks were able to find those imbalances and holes in play action or pass plays. And specifically with their use of different defensive fronts, uh, they were able to take advantage of that as well. So in this game, the Bucks used a 3-3-5 defense, which they haven't done much this season. They've leaned more heavily on 2-4-5, where you have outside linebackers rushing the passer. But the benefit of 3-3-5 is that it's pretty versatile. It can be tough to read and definitely enabled them to keep more guys deep rather, rather than like a 4-3 or 3-4. They were able to still generate pressure there as we talked about um, while like having a lot of guys deeper to sort of combat like the, the Chiefs passing attack. Yeah, if you have a quarterback who can kind of scramble and is okay under pressure like Mahomes, then maybe it's okay to focus on other areas. But if you need someone like who needs the protection, maybe like Tom Brady, then you need a stronger offensive line. That's just a simple way of thinking about it. We talked about the offensive line. Now we'll get back to what Tucker said earlier, you know, about the penalties. That was the other huge um, handicap for the Chiefs. In the 2020 season, the Chiefs finished fourth highest in the league in penalties with 105. On the other hand, the Bucks were 20th in the league with 84 penalties. This is just a fun fact that I found when looking through the penalty history. The Chiefs actually led the league in 2018 and the Bucks led the league in 2019 in penalties. But in this Super Bowl, the Chiefs finished with 11 penalties for 120 yards while the Bucks had four penalties for just 39 yards. It wasn't just you know the number of penalties, but it was also the timing, which was really critical. 
early on in the game, a Tyree Matthew interception was nullified after a Traverius Ward holding penalty, which was on the other side of the field. Three plays later, McCole Hardman lined up offsides on a field goal attempt, giving the Bucks a first down that would eventually lead to a second Gronkowski touchdown. With one minute left in the second half, Tom Brady aired out a 34-yard pass to Mike Evans, which pretty much looked uncatchable, only for a pass interference to be called. Then Tyron Matthew was called for pass interference in the end zone, leading to ball being placed at the one in an Antonio Brown touchdown with seconds remaining in the first half, giving the Bucks a 21-6 lead. So Tucker kind of hit on an earlier, all these consequential penalties on key situations, giving the Bucks, you know, multiple opportunities, kind of really put the Chiefs in a hole and kind of cost them the game in a way. So penalties are something that we usually don't talk about in analytics. It seems like somewhat of an external factor that's out of a player's control, but not really entirely. If you're, you know, a weaker cornerback and you're bound to get beaten coverage, then you're more likely to commit pass interference. So I guess the question is, how can analytics assess penalties and try to combat a player, you know, getting flagged a lot, especially in, in key situations? So basically, what are the analytics on penalties? I guess I would say it's tough to separate the situational aspects of it. Like penalties aren't always bad. You can have efficient penalties. Like there are instances where you'd want an offensive lineman to hold in order to avoid a sack that would cost you significant yardage. You, I guess, preserve the down in that instance, Um, or even a pass interference can be worth it when you're going to have a completely blown coverage. So I think it's definitely something that should be integrated into the way that teams think about strategy and even maybe running routes that are likely to maximize DPI calls or certain things like that. So I think it's definitely not an external factor and there are correlations with penalties and specific types of plays. And I think players should be aware of when is appropriate to commit penalties and when isn't, it shouldn't be sort of looked at as a purely negative stat. Like Ella talked about, penalties can definitely be a product of the situation and certain players in certain situations can provoke certain penalties. In particular, Tom Brady tends to excel at drawing defensive pass interference calls. Certain quarterbacks on deep go routes can underthrow the ball a little bit, try to provoke a pass interference call. And another thing I brought up was sometimes a penalty can be a good thing. I think in particular, the deep pass to Mike Evans uh, when Bashaw Breland tripped him up, it looked as though Evans had Breland beat and it would have gone for a long touchdown pass had Evans brought it in, so potentially you could argue that maybe that was that was a good penalty and that even though obviously the result was bad, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Yeah, I agree. I, on the quarterback front, I've long since been a believer in being more strategic about taking deep shots just because of the percentage chance that a defensive pass interference penalty gets called. From a penalty perspective, it was actually the, the second costliest game in the last two decades in terms of in in the playoffs uh, by a defense, the chiefs with their penalty differential on defense cost themselves over 10 expected points. It's it's the costliest game since 2013 when Carolina cost itself 10.8 points against the uh, San Francisco 49ers. So it was a huge, huge factor as far as analytics for penalties go. One of the big things that I've seen is integrating them more into, into traditional player and team statistics. So a lot of times, you know, traditional statistics like yards and pass attempts and, you know, the, the basic stuff that you see at football reference is not going to include plays with penalties. Those things are sort of like wiped from the sort of record book and, and kept in their own 
like separate column, which I think is kind of ill-advised. I mean, it's, it's worth having an indicator that there was a penalty, but it's all part of the game. Like Ella said, there, there are conscious decisions or even unconscious decisions, but mistakes the teams make in committing these penalties. The integration of those penalties into like putting them in the same bucket as all other plays and using that as a way to judge overall efficiency of an offense or a defense or, or a quarterback or you know whatever you want to do, I think has been a big thing in analytics that I have noticed and really started to appreciate more because like I said, if you just look at traditional statistics, most of those just cut out plays where there were penalties unless they were, you know, say 15 yards on a face mask tacked on to the end of a run. Fine. But there should be some impact where you're analyzing how, say, a holding penalty or a defensive pass interference penalty may have had something to do with the players on the field. So um, I think the trend towards including it in the larger bucket of statistics has been one positive development, but definitely still more to be done on that front. You know, when are optimal penalties to be taking? You know, what are situations where um, you should be doing everything you can not to take a penalty? I, I think there's more to be done, but it is getting integrated into sort of assessment, I think, more than traditional statistics would suggest. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point that Tucker just made about statistics not even including penalties or anything. Like most people could tell you like who the best cornerbacks are based on interceptions, but there's no nobody would think, oh, which cornerbacks lead the league in in pass interference calls. And just, you know, kind of compare it to another sport, because that's easy for me. Take basketball, for instance. Fouls are also kind of like a, a separate statistic. But we're not also thinking about when they foul them, that's putting the other team at the free throw line, giving them free points. So kind of the same thing with basketball and football. Just easy to relate that way. The other thing about penalties is that fans, you know, always like to complain about the officiating. And I'm sure that Chiefs fans were upset with some of the some of those pass interference calls. But is there any way to assess whether the refs were biased in this game? Sorry, sorry to burst your bubble, Chiefs fans. But I'm I'm gonna have to say no on this case. Several of the penalties were pretty obvious ones. I know Bill Barnwell posted a tweet that with the little circles on the offsides for Nicole Hardman on the field goal. Hardman was clearly offsides, a pretty obvious penalty on the long punt by Tommy Townsend. The holding call was pretty obvious. Prevented a block, actually. Yeah, true. Across the board, most of the calls were pretty clear. And even if some of the calls were questionable, uh, especially some of the pass interference calls, especially uh, the one against Toronto Matthew in the end zone, even if a couple of calls were questionable, I think in terms of this refereeing crew, which tended to be much more in favor of calling penalties rather than letting them play. I think it makes sense that if it was an iffy call, it would it would be called a penalty. Carl Sheffers, who was the head referee for this game, his crew led the league in penalties this year. And over the last 10 years, his crew has rated above average in penalty calls in eight of the last 10. So it's not surprising that more penalties would be called, a lot more holds, a lot more pass interference would be called in this game. And the Chiefs, unfortunately, caught the brunt of that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Danny. I think I would prefer to see the whistles put away for the Super Bowl, um, have fewer penalties. But, I mean, I, I just don't – I don't really have a lot of patience for the belly aching as far as like – as though refs are in somebody's pocket. Like, it's just the sort of coordination that that would require <laughs> – and the allegations that like, oh, they're biased towards a particular player or something like that. I will say as a caveat, 
there are studies that show certain subconscious biases based on race and gender in sports. That's not necessarily out of the question. However, the idea that, you know, the league wants X or the the refs like Brady or the refs like this or that. Refs are people who are prone to making mistakes. And one of my favorite tweets that somebody else tweeted is, is that if you approach bad calls in sports, just like you would a bad bounce or an unlucky thing happening, instead of assuming that people are out to get you, your approach to sports will be much more, much healthier. Most of it is just noise, just variance. It's not favoring anyone. It's, it's just the way it unfolds. And like Danny said, if you're the team that is committing more fouls in a game where there are refs that are going to throw more flags, you will have more penalties and you may not like it. And there were people talking about how the Chiefs had been very grabby in the secondary all year. So it's like, it's not a shocker to me that all of this happened. And I honestly think if I were analyzing the calls, the only real questionable call was that Tyron Matthew back of the end zone. But I thought the pass interference on Evans was clear. And honestly, I'm not that interested in like litigating it. It's just, it's part of the game. You play a certain way, you're going to face the consequences of that. And it is just noise. It is just variance as far as bad calls go. But definitely, I don't have a whole lot of patience for belly aching over bad refereeing. Yeah, I, I think whether or not you agree with it, we can all acknowledge the impact that the penalties had on this game. As Tucker cited that statistic, that the second costliest game kind of just shows the, the big impact that it had. So now we'll just briefly revisit some of our over-unders from last week, just seeing kind of taking a retrospective look on the game. So our first one was, would Tom Brady throw for over or under 350 yards? Ellen Tucker got this one correct. He only passed for 201, but he still threw for three touchdowns, which is kind of interesting. And this was his second lowest passing yards in a Super Bowl besides his first one against the Rams, in which he threw for 145 yards. Next, we had Will Mahomes throw for over or under three touchdowns. We all went under, but nobody predicted that he would have zero touchdowns and Kansas City would have zero touchdowns. And I think they only got into the red zone three times. And this is only the fourth time in his career that Mahomes has passed for no touchdowns. Next, we had will the Buccaneers rush for over or under 100 yards? We were all wrong on this. We all took the under. And the Buccaneers ended up rushing for 145 yards, 89 from Leonard Fournette, and 61 from Ronald Jones. This was probably likely due you know, to the game script. We were not expecting the Bucs to get ahead and then to run the ball. We were expecting kind of the opposite, to get behind and have to pass. So that kind of accounts for this one. Next, we had will Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey combine for over 200 yards. Now, even though Kansas City still had a really down offensive game, this still kind of shows how impressive these two receivers are, as Hill had seven receptions for 73 yards and Kelsey had 10 for 133 yards. So they just barely made it with 206, but it still kind of shows you know the explosiveness of these two receivers. And lastly, we were trying to predict how many fourth down conversions there would be. There were four fourth down conversion attempts, and only one of them was successful. Probably the most memorable one was that when Tampa Bay went for it on you know fourth and goal from the one, and Kansas City actually stopped them. But probably we all agreed that was the right call analytics-wise. And that was probably the most exciting play of the game, but still I think the right call. Yeah, I think the fourth and one from the goal line was – I thought at, at the time that I watched the stop happen, I was like, oh, that is going to come back to bite Tampa. Not the decision to go for it, but the fact that they couldn't run it into the end zone. You know, you just felt like at the time, what was it, 7-3? 
ooh, they needed those points when they had the chance and you thought it was going to be a big deal. And then also another play that happened on the fourth down was one of Mahomes' rollouts where he he did like a jump throw and was horizontal to the ground. And that was almost an incredible play. But yeah, the fourth downs were probably not as big of a factor as they might have been if the game were closer. Now we can talk about who are our MVPs. So obviously, you know, Tom Brady's the quarterback, most important player on the field, and he did actually win the MVP. So who is your MVP of the game? So for me, I'll go first. I got to go with the person that I made the prediction last week, who is going to be an X factor, Gronkowski. Clearly he had a pretty good game, two touchdowns. And those were crucial, you know, to kind of get that Bucks that early lead, that early cushion at the beginning of the game, capitalizing on what their defense was doing and kind of set them up for success the rest of the game. So Gronk is my MVP. I'll go with Vita Vea. He was consistently able to generate pressures. He had an average separation from a homes of 3.6, uh, which I think league averages around four and a half. So definitely made an impact in the pass rush. Oh, could you just explain what you mean by that separation metric? Or what does that mean exactly? Yeah, so next-gen stats records the distance of pass rushers from the quarterback. So a, a smaller distance is it indicates a good pass rush. My MVP was uh, Shaq Barrett. I, I just think, I mean, he was outstanding. I, I w- I'd love to give a contrarian sort of like, you know, give it to Tristan Wirfs or somebody on the Bucks offensive line, but the Bucks defensive line was just outstanding. And Barrett and Vea, we're just absolutely wreaking havoc on that offensive line. So I'm going to give it to Shaq Barrett. Hawker, you you stole my pick. Oh, sorry. I didn't know that. I'm sorry. That was I promise that was not intentional. No, um, I think you brought up an excellent point with Tristan Wirfs. I think the Bucks' offensive line played at an outstanding rate, both in the pass game and the run game. I'll give my MVP award to Ali Marpet uh, as a representative for the offensive line. He had a particularly great play on Leonard Fournette's touchdown run, pancaking someone out of the way on a pull, setting Fournette up for a long TD run. Yeah, so we all have our MVPs. Now we'll go to the other side with the LVPs. I like least valuable player for the Chiefs. I mean, it was kind of, we kind of talked about earlier. It was a whole host of people, probably the, the Chiefs, you know, secondary as a whole, but I'm just going to pinpoint it on Javarius Ward for that holding penalty that cost that interception. So, I mean, it's the whole Chiefs secondary, but... I'm going to pinpoint on him for that one pivotal play. Yeah, I think Ward is a valuable candidate, least valuable candidate. I mean, he had one of the highest penalty rates during the regular season. Only Patrick Peterson had more penalties among corners. Along the same lines, I'll go with Daniel Sorensen. Really, like you mentioned, all the Chiefs linebackers and safeties really struggled in this game. The corners did a decent job shutting down the Bucks wide receivers, but the Linebackers and safeties got toasted by the Bucks tight ends and running backs. Brady was 13 of 14, 139 yards, and the two touchdown passes to Rob Gronkowski on passes to running backs and tight ends. So Sorensen, in particular, was really struggling. He bit too often on the play actions on the run fakes and got him out of position on pass plays. In addition, even when it was a run play, he struggled. Um, and this was just a year-long trend. He ranked dead last in run defense, according to PFF's run defense grades. So across the board, the chief secondary really struggled. Uh, but Daniel Sorensen was my particular least valuable player. Yeah, I guess I have two. Uh, Andrew Wiley was definitely a weak spot within the line. 
he had one of his worst PFF grades that he's ever received, but it's tough to put it on a guard being asked to play tackle. So aside from him, I'll go with Bashad Breeland. He was the worst in coverage and run defense, according to PFF, and had a holding penalty and a DPI called on him. Yeah, I feel like you guys have taken all the good, the good candidates here. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd probably go with Breland. I think that that defensive pass interference actually, to harken back to what Ella said about strategic penalties, may not have been a bad penalty, but he was just being hammered in coverage. I think he allowed, among defensive backs, there was a stat of, I think it was Levante, David, or Devin White allowed the most yards in coverage or receptions and coverage of a player. Yeah, Devin White. But obviously, Devin White played outstandingly. So yeah, I would go with Breland, but I think all of the aforementioned potential candidates are good answers as well. So enough, you know, we can't rag on the Chiefs forever, but so now that'll turn to our next segment in which we're going to make our predictions next year for the Bucks and the Chiefs. So Tom Brady said that he's already coming back in a post-game prep conference. He said, quote, you better believe it. He's only won back-to-back Super Bowls once in his career. That was in 2004 and 2005. And that's the only time that a team has won back-to-back Super Bowls since the year 2000. Bet MGM already put out their odds, and currently the Chiefs are the favorites with an implied winning probability of about 11.5%. Packers are second at about 8%, and the Bucks are third at about 7.3%. The Ravens and Bills ran out the top five, but today we're just going to focus on the Chiefs and the Bucks. Personally, I think that the Chiefs are definitely in the best position to win the Super Bowl next year. You know, they have the best quarterback in the league in Mahomes. Their defense is still pretty good. They're not losing a lot of people. So I'm still confident that the Chiefs are. If you were to place a bet, that would be the team to do it. The thing about the Bucs is I think going into this season, I think people underrated the Bucs, you know, not even being a playoff team that last year. People were kind of down on Brady. How good is he really without Belichick? So they kind of underrated them heading into this year. But now my concern is that going into next year, they might overrate the Bucks. Defense is a little more variable year to year, so we could see that defense regress. They also have some free agents that they could lose. So I think there's more risk with the Bucks, you know, regressing a little bit. But I think definitely both of these teams, definitely top five, top seven teams next year. Yeah, I agree. Top five, top seven teams, not a super hot take. I think that's definitely likely. I think the Chiefs are the clear favorite. This one game doesn't really do anything to change my opinion of the Chiefs. Uh, It'll definitely change the narrative in sort of like talking heads and public perception, but it doesn't. They're still the best team in the NFL, I think. Before anybody makes any decisions about where the Bucs are going to be next season in terms of power rankings or or title odds, uh, I think we have to see what happens with the free agents. They just have so many big pieces who have, well, at the parade, I think they were, they were all claiming to come back, that they were going to come back. But we have to see what actually unfolds in free agency. Who comes back? What does the roster look like? Whereas Kansas City has quite a bit of continuity. And I think the Packers are also sort of up there in that discussion. And maybe I, I don't foresee the Bills being the sort of juggernaut that they were this year. I, mean, I could absolutely be wrong. But I think, yeah, the Chiefs are the clear number one. And, and nothing about that Super Bowl changes this. Yeah, David brought up a great point earlier about how defense is less sustainable compared to offense. And I think that's one reason why the Chiefs are going to be more likely to be back in the Super Bowl than the Buccaneers. Um, It's just so much easier because quarterbacks control so much about offense. Patrick Mahomes is still still going to be great. I'm I'm not too worried about the Chiefs offense next year. But with the free agents, with 
potentially Levante David, Shaq Barrett, others might be gone next year. And will be tough uh, for the Buccaneers to reclaim their spot as an elite defense. And then secondly, uh, the level of competition is probably a little bit higher in the NFC. Like Tucker mentioned, the Packers are probably the third best team. Who knows who's going to come out of the NFC West. Maybe the Rams are going to excel with Matt Stafford. Whereas in the AFC, there's a little bit more of a gap between the Chiefs and the second tier of teams. Both teams will probably be good next year. But if I had to take the pick on who's going to be back in the Super Bowl, I would lean towards the Chiefs over the Bucks. Yeah, I agree with what everyone's been saying. Um, most of the odds I've seen have the Chiefs as favorite, Bucks as second favorite. Um, but I definitely think it'll be interesting to watch how the odds change over the offseason. Yeah, I think we all hit on it. But the interesting thing about football is harder to predict year to year, especially given that it's such a team sport. Like I said, there's only been one back-to-back champion since the year 2000. Take a sport like basketball where you have you know the Warriors winning back-to-backs and it's the same teams in the playoffs every year. Whereas football, a little more variance. And I think the, the best way to wrap up this episode, you know, it's the big storyline going in, going out of the game, is discussing, you know, Tom Brady's legacy. So obviously he was at the top of the GOAT leaderboard before this game. He definitely has his critics, but nobody can deny Brady's greatness. And that at the end of the day, he's just, you know, an absolute winner. There was a really great 538 article that came out this week. I want to make sure I get the name right. It's called all the ways that Tom Brady is football's goat by Neil Payne. And it was just a great article that lays out all these different metrics that we use to measure a goat. Like uh, he used like peak performance, longevity, playoff performance and domination, and all these, you know, different metrics. And basically for all these metrics that we use to measure a goat, he's near the top of that list. And the main accomplishment that this Super Bowl adds to Brady's resume is that he did it with a whole different team. And obviously without Bill Belichick. It sort of gave me Kevin Durant, you know, joining the Warriors vibes at the beginning of the year. But the difference is that this Bucks team did not even make the playoffs last year. They were, I think, seven and nine. So Brady really is the centerpiece that kind of brought this all together, both on the field and then off the field from a leadership perspective. And growing up, I have to admit that I was probably not the biggest Brady fan, you know, having the Patriots win so much. And as a Jets fan, it's kind of tough to see him dominate that division so much. But I think I've started to come around. And to me, I think that Brady might be, Brady for me is the GOAT. He's my GOAT. And I think fans might not realize this now, but people will probably come around on his GOAT worthiness more in the future when we realize how special his career was and how many how much of a winner this guy is. But that was kind of a long-winded spiel about my personal view on Brady. But so yeah, you, we don't have to get into the whole, you know, Brady is the GOAT discussion. I'm sure Tucker and Danny have strong opinions as Patriots fans. <laughs> but yeah, just what what is Tom Brady's legacy? You know, how does it kind of change with this game? Yeah, I mean, I think he has for a while now been putting up numbers that nobody will ever touch. I mean, like Jerry Rice, regular season career receiving yards type numbers. Just the longevity and the consistency and performance. And as you said, winning. I mean, a lot of people, including myself, would say that Quarterback wins is not a great way to measure performance, but the numbers related to that are just like jaw dropping. And even from a more advanced analytical perspective, he really has been the best quarterback really over a long period of time. He played in a league with Peyton Manning early on, and then he played with Aaron Rodgers, and then he played with prime Patrick Mahomes. So 
you know, was there ever a period where he really led the league in these sort of advanced metrics? And I was a little surprised to find, and this is coming from a big Brady fan myself, but that from 2007 to 2017, so before Mahomes came into the league, for over a decade, he led the league in EPA per play. And so I think sometimes we forget that he's still a really good quarterback. I mean, obviously, nobody's everybody's playing their tiniest violin for the people who doubted Tom Brady. But I do think that he is he is still on a per game basis, an incredible performer. And we will start to see, as you said, when people start to try to go after these records or even like approach them, that some of these just numbers that we have seen in the Brady era are just, they're never going to be touched. There's no way they will ever be touched. People will definitely start to appreciate that after the fact. I think we're all a little numb to it now and probably a little bit pissed off if you're you know, a Jets fan, but I think we'll start to appreciate it more as it sort of marinates and we realize just how ridiculous those numbers were during the time that he is playing in the NFL. Yeah, I think one way to look at it is just to think about how we determine which players are Hall of Famers. And I guess one argument that people talk about a lot is if you were to remove some subset of a particular player's plays, would they would that maintain their Hall of Fame status? And if it's excessively dependent on a few plays, then that means it's more likely due to luck or randomness than actual skill. And I think I saw a tweet saying basically that if you were to split Brady's career in thirds, he would be a Hall of Famer in each of them. And I think that kind of stat taken to the extreme is really like, no matter how many plays you, you take away or how many particular passes you attribute to luck, he's got the stats to back it up even without those. Yeah, Tucker put together an outstanding article, uh, Measure of the Man, Tom Brady's career numbers show his longevity, versatility. Highly encourage you to read it. Tucker highlighted that exact point in his article. If you split Brady's career up into thirds, he ranks in the top three in total EPA in each of those three thirds. Also top five in yards, touchdowns, one, at least one championship, if not two or three uh, in all those thirds. Obviously, Brady's an outstanding player. And another point to highlight from Tucker's article, how long Brady's been doing it. Tucker pointed out that Brady's career is essentially Peyton Manning's trajectory plus Aaron Rodgers' trajectory put together. Manning and Aaron Rodgers are widely seen as some of the top quarterbacks of this era, and putting them together is what you get if you just look at Brady's career alone. I think it's interesting. Uh, They have this Hall of Fame monitor on Pro Football Reference, and for what it's worth, I think yeah, Brady is still below Manning in his Hall of Fame monitor. I don't know what the model is that they use to track that. A lot of it is based on like accolades and leading the league in something or being recognized as MVP. I I was interested to see if that would catapult him over the top. Uh, maybe they haven't updated. It says seven championships here, so I don't know. But that's an interesting tool. If you care about legacy and that sort of thing, that's a really cool thing to look at. I, I They do that for all the positions at Pro Football Reference. So I'd recommend taking a look at that if you like to look at that sort of thing. Whether or not Tom Brady is our GOAT, we kind of, we, we all know that this guy is one of the greatest football players, greatest winners, greatest athletes of all time. And I think a problem with the debate, sometimes people just get too bogged down and just saying no to Brady. He's not the greatest. Like you don't have to have one or nothing. You can still recognize how great of a quarterback Tom Brady is while still recognize, you know, how good Joe Montana is. Like you just recognize that these guys are all GOATs. At the end of the day, these are these are athletes, they're people, 
and we should recognize how talented and how special their careers are and not get too caught up with trying to argue against it. Anyway, that's my little rant on GOAT and GOAT debating, but it's still fun to have these discussions. And yeah, I think that we did a pretty deep dive into the Super Bowl. You know, maybe it wasn't the most exciting game, but still a good conclusion to the 2020 NFL season. Again, thanks to Ella, Danny, and Tucker for joining me today. You can find Ella on her Twitter at Checks, C-H-E-X Matrix. Check out all of Danny's articles on the HSAC website and follow Tucker's Twitter at Tucker underscore TNL and check out his brand new database website at NFLindex.com. If you have any questions about the show or like to get in contact, check out our website at harvardsportsanalysis.org or follow us on Twitter at Harvard underscore sports. I'm David Arco, and thank you, and we hope you enjoyed these first series of episodes on the end of the NFL season. We'll be back with some new sports very soon. Thanks.